All right. Welcome, everyone. Everyone just start clapping. It'll make it so much more fun. Yay. Yay for Veritas Women's Bible Study. It's so fun. Keep clapping. Yay. Guys, I'm so excited to get started. I'm so thankful that you guys are here. Um, what, what a great group of women. This is going to be um, such a sweet experience for us to all come together, gather around God's word, um, make friends, see, see uh, God's word come alive in our lives. So I am just, I am very thankful to be here with you guys a lot of you I have not had a chance to meet. My name is Rebecca Johnson, and I get to work here at Veritas. Uh, this is my favorite thing, is, is women's Bible study. Um, I also get to help with connection groups and, and some other stuff, but this, this is my favorite. And we do Bible studies three times a year, but I think summer is the best because we all, well, first of all, it's summer, so everything is better in the summer. Oh, yay, summer. <laughs> Um, but I really love that we bring our morning students and our evening students, and we all come together. Um, it simplifies it. We don't, we don't have to think about bringing kiddos in and getting childcare and stuff like that. So it just kind of has a party feel, which, which I love. Um, but I also want to acknowledge that not everyone in here um, loves huge groups or loves meeting new people, we're all made differently. And so actually for those of you who maybe would prefer to be a wallflower or maybe you're an introvert and you're here, actually even more kudos to you, especially if you don't know people. Um, so now I'll say it more in like a toned down version that if that is you, I am really excited for you to slowly and steadily get to know people in your own way. One of my introverted friends today gave me a very sincere text where she was like, I said, thank you for leading a small group, even though you're an introvert. And she said, are you kidding me? It's controlled conversation. I love that. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's an optimistic way to put it. And I was happy, happy to hear that. So, all right, guys. So let me kind of tell you what you can expect uh, for the duration of this study and then what you can expect for tonight. So I want to start pretty broadly. We started doing Bible studies as a church about seven years ago, and we started right away with three studies a, three studies a year uh, and have just kept it pretty consistent. And we started kind of writing on the coattails of a, a Bible study author named Jen Wilkin. She kind of gave us some tracks to run on, and we kind of got on there and ran behind her and started learning as we go. And we all were co-learners together. And so we've been doing that for about seven years, a, a fall study, a spring study, and, and a summer one. Usually two of the studies are original, where a group of us write them here, and then one of those studies has been written by Jen Wilkin. So for this study, this is a Veritas original. Uh, as you have figured out, we are studying the book of Isaiah. We're going to meet six times. So it's a five-week study, if that makes sense. So this is kind of how we started women's ministry. We maybe just had a couple events or parties a year, but mostly we wanted Bible study to be the place that met the needs of the women. It's the place where we learn God's word. It's a place where we make friends. It's a place where we find uh, discipleship and mentorship. Uh, we believe that it's this environment that can, if God blesses it, it can meet all of those needs. And it's at Bible study that I like to remind all of us of kind of a, a vision that, a vision statement that we um, built several years ago. It's pretty simple. At Veritas Women's Events, we say that we are known by God and loved by God. Therefore, let's love each other and know each other. So what that means is that we have to leave our pretenses at the door, our masks at the door, our desire to impress, and instead we come in with sincerity and we build our conversations around the gospel and around God's word. Ladies, we're known by God and we're loved by God. So let's know each other 
and love each other. So part of what we do with Bible study is small group time. So next week when you come and you fall into our normal routine, what you will do when you arrive at 7 o'clock is you will go to your small group. Small groups, it's, it's not very small. They're usually they're like 15 plus people, um, but that's a good problem to have. So you're going to disperse all over the building and you're going to have this 45 minutes of discussion around what you have studied that week. You're going to have a designated leader for that time. And guys, I want you to hear me say that that person is not getting paid <laughs> to facilitate your group. They may not even necessarily feel confident to be a teacher. I have asked them to facilitate conversation. If you look to them to know all of the answers, then what will happen? They will never volunteer again. And I will be, <laughs> and our small groups will just get bigger and bigger. So when you go to your small group, you are sitting in a circle of co-learners. So please remember that. They are there to keep the conversation focused, to keep it good and healthy and moving forward. Okay, so that's the first 45 minutes of Bible study. And then we have like a four-minute passing time where you move into this room. And in here, we'll have about a 40-minute teaching over what we've been studying that week. Okay, so for tonight, it's just flipped so that we can just kind of communicate the expectations and so that everyone knows where to go. So tonight we'll be in here for the first little bit and then we will go to our small groups. Don't worry if you just felt like, oh no, I didn't do any of the study this week. I better skip out of my small group. Nobody did, okay? No one could have even gotten the studies before Sunday. I bet there's a couple Bible nerds in here that did get their study on Sundays and started. And I could probably pick you out and embarrass you right now, but I won't do that. But don't worry, when you go to your group tonight, it's more get to know you, talk about some of the things that we introduced tonight in the large group time. Okay, so some of the things that we have been building into our language uh, since we started Bible studies is around this idea of biblical literacy. Okay, so it's essentially this, the tools that we have picked up over the years to help us be good students of the Bible. So I want to just hit on a couple of those. Some of you have heard this year after year after year. I think it's still a good reminder. I know that I still need to be pushed to pick up these tools when I open up the Bible. Okay, guys, the first one is a phrase that we have borrowed from other people called the path of transformation. This is the idea that when we open God's word, that we're actually going to have like a path that we're picturing when we approach it. That means that we're going to actually lead out with our minds. So when you open up your study guide and when you open up the book of Isaiah for the next six weeks, guys, you're going to push yourself to approach it with your mind. It's okay if you're a feeler. It's okay if you're a people person rather than a natural student. You can still do this, guys. You can still push yourself to lead out with your mind and you're going to think about the questions. And what's going to happen then after you have led with your mind is it's going to move to your heart. You're going to go from thinking about it to allowing yourself to feel it, to allow your affections to be, to be stirred. And then our prayer and our hope and what we believe works is it moves out into our hands. Does that make sense? It goes from our mind to our heart to our hands. This is the path of transformation. So just because we're pushing ourselves to study a hard book like Isaiah does not mean that you have to leave your heart at home. I'm not here forcing us to say, hey, we better be the most impressive women in the corridor. Not at all. But I do think that, that sometimes we need pushed to, to include our minds. Sometimes we need to be pushed to include our behavior as part of what we're hoping the, the word of God will change in us. Okay, so that's our approach as a group of women. Another thing that we're going to push each other to remember, this is going to seem so obvious, but it's that the Bible is first and foremost about God. Okay, again, not original to us, but it seemed like a good thing for us to nod along with and say, yeah, we want to think this way too. Of course the Bible's about God, right? Yeah, well, except most of the days when I open my Bible, who am I looking to read about? This girl right here. That's what's actually way more natural for me, is I want to open up God's word and find out something encouraging about me, that I'm good enough, Right? Guys, we are going to find out so much about ourselves by studying God's word. But first, we're going to look in the God's word to learn about God. So God before self. 
And then lastly, one of the things that we love to learn about is the big story of the Bible. Okay, so we are constantly just kind of chipping away at this mystery that while the Bible is made up of thousands of stories, they all fit into one story, a story that begins in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation. One big story. Okay, so that might mean that when we're zoomed in on one part of Isaiah, that at first it might not make perfect sense to us, but then we're going to let the Bible teach the Bible. So rather than getting frustrated or rather than just making a guess in the dark at what this one little part of Isaiah might mean, we're going to tether it into this big story. And here's why I like to do that, guys. I think it's way more exciting. As I've been learning about that, the Bible has just come alive to me. It has become way more of a complex and exciting story rather than just the little stories within it, trying to put them together like puzzle pieces that don't go together. Instead, we're going to see this thread that starts in Genesis and it's just going to weave all the way through. We're going to see it weave like crazy right in the middle in Isaiah and then continue on through the New Testament all the way through Revelation. Okay, so those are our approaches. Those are things that it's not like those of us who have done these studies for a while just learned in one night or even in one study. But it's been a slow and steady uh, training for us as we approach God's word. All right, so you guys got two things when you checked. Well, you got three things. You got ice cream, but then you got two booklets. One of them is uh, this ESV Illuminated Journal. So let me just speak to this for just a minute, guys. We started doing this a little bit ago. Does anyone here have the whole case of Illuminated Journals? Like, yeah, oh, a couple, yes. They're beautiful. They're so worth the, the money, in my opinion. I never sit at my desk at home. The only reason I got a desk is so I could put my beautiful ESV Illuminated Journals. I just sit on the couch all the time. But they're all different colors, and they kind of flow into one another. So anyway, we um, are going to use this for our study um, because there's going to be a lot of times that we're going to mark up the text. And I have found that if we include this with your Bible study, that you guys are going to be more likely, it's going to be easier for you to mark up the study and become an active learner. Okay, so this is the whole book of Isaiah. It's in ESV. So what that means is when you're using the study guide, um, there's going to be times where it's, you're going to be need to be looking in the ESV rather than NIV or CSB, not that those are wrong or, in, or the NASB, but you might get more clarity on the questions if you stick with ESV for the study. Don't tell Jeff Dodge that we haven't switched to CSB. We're going to stay strong with our ESV. Okay, so now you guys have your workbook. Um, in this workbook, guys, is five weeks of study, five days a week. Okay, so right away you have two days off a week. So you need to find five chunks of time a week. I would say that bare minimum, you're going to want 25 minutes to do that work each day. You can easily go slower and have it take even longer. Okay, but that's what you're going to find as you look through that study guide. Within those studies are three different kinds of questions. Again, if you've done our studies, you know this, guys. But there's three kinds of questions, and I want you to maybe, especially if you're new, just be able to see the difference in them. The first one is observation. Observation questions, that's at least 50% of the questions in there. Observation says, what does it say? Okay, I always say that on these questions, you're going to smile, you're going to kind of nod, you're going to think positive thoughts about me in that moment, because you'll be like, I know this answer. I can do this. Those are observation questions. They'll seem too easy, but guys, the point of it is so that you will get your nose in the actual text, get close to the text to ask, what does it say? Okay, there's a second kind of question called the interpretation question. That asks not what does it say, but what does it mean? These are questions where you might do one of these, you might no longer smile, and you might think mean thoughts about me for a brief moment. Please remember, I'm not the only one who wrote this. So if you want to be angry at someone else, I'll give you names later. Guys, these are kind of tricky questions. They usually start with, why do you think, or how, or in what way? And you're going to feel them kind of stretch your thinking. It's okay to guess. It's okay to draw a big artistic looking question mark on that. 
But I would ask that you would pump the brakes and sit in that unknown, even just for a hot second, okay? And then the third kind of question is the application question. This is where you'll bounce back to liking us. This is, how does this affect me? Okay? I believe that those questions are bolded in the study guide. Okay? The last thing I want to draw your attention to in this study is that most of the weeks on day five, it's a little bit of a different day. This is a little bit of a, um, of a devotional day or a journal day, and we titled it that at the top. It still is tied to Isaiah. It's tied to the text that we're in, but it's going to push you to reflect on what you've been studying that week and how it will affect your life. Okay? So with that, I think now we can just talk a little bit about the ways. Those are all the things that we have done for years. And now I want to say Isaiah is a little different. Okay, it's kind of this idea of you learn the rules so that you can break the rules. If you're super type A and you hate that I just said that, I'm sorry. But I really think it works for this. So we have worked really hard to get a foundation for the last seven years of good Bible literacy. And by no means are we throwing those out right now and just doing a topical, kind of untethered, nothing but emotion study. Not at all. That's not what I mean. But I think that we have worked so hard to learn line by line study. You know, we've had studies where we've just gone through like a verse a week in our Colossians study. We've gone so slowly. And now we got this dude right here. This is 66 chapters. If we were going to study this whole thing line by line, like we've always done with every other study, we would have to cover 13 chapters a week in the summer when we're supposed to be going on walks and laying out at the beach and abiding in the Lord, of course. But 13 chapters a week. And if we're going to try and study with those tools I just told you and go deep and get close to the text, that, that sounds like a disaster. So what we're going to do, guys, is we're going to approach this a little bit differently. Still using the tools that we always have, guys, what we are going to do is we're not going to even try and study this exhaustively or comprehensively. You're actually, if you follow the, the study plan, you're not going to read every single chapter in this book. My hope is that when you're done with this in five, six weeks, that that's actually what you want to do, is that you want to spend the rest of the summer reading the remainder of Isaiah. So it might not be exhaustive, but I hope that what you'll see is it is absolutely still methodical and intentional in how we're going to go about it. Because I saw multiple sources that would describe Isaiah as kind of the summit of the Old Testament kind of like a mountaintop point in the Old Testament. And they also say that Isaiah's message is, is the summit of God's people's story. It's the high point of that. And so as we go through it, guys, what I want us to do is kind of envision that we are following Isaiah, the author, that we're following him to five different summits, to five different mountaintops within this book. Okay, so can you kind of think that way with me? Think about hiking. I mean, that's, it's seasonal, right? This is the time that if any of us like to hike, this is the time that we do it. My family and I love to hike. My husband, Matt, and I hiked for our, our well, we got to know each other even out in Colorado, and then we had our honeymoon uh, in Colorado. Then we moved out there and have always enjoyed hiking. Now we have a routine where we take our three boys to a national park every summer so that we can hike. And I was thinking about this. Why do we hike? I mean, obviously, it can be a super challenging sport. I was kind of thinking through, I was asking my boys, uh, what, do, what do they remember from all of our hikes? And it was so interesting, the things that they remembered. I mean, I, I can remember way back when Matt and I would first start, I remember us losing our dog on one hike. It was super stressful, right? Like, he, Matt always thinks we have well-behaved enough dogs that they can go off the leash, they're never well-behaved enough to go off the leash. So I remember losing Dwayne one summer on a hike. I remember inviting my mom to hike um, a 14er with us in Colorado. She was like 100 yards in before she vomited everywhere. 
and then kept going. She was so awesome and, and summited with us. I mean, I remember having to run down a mountain to get away from the lightning one time. My husband was a junior high youth pastor. We would take junior hires on these hikes with us every Monday in the Rockies. We, there was one time there was this sixth grade kid who could not focus to save his life. And so we took Dwayne again and we took his leash and tied it around the sixth grade boy and let the dog pull him up the mountain. Hiking is hard. We've had times where we've gotten lost. We've had times where we fought on the trail. We had a really scary time where a huge rock fell on top of my youngest head and we had like an emergency situation. He's fine, we think. It was years ago. So hiking is hard, right? You got to be in shape. You got to have perseverance. So why do we do it, guys? Why would anyone be motivated to hike? It's because of the view at the top. Right? It's the view. It's the splendor and it's the beauty of what you see when you get to the top. There's a perspective that you have when you're up there that you can see that you can't see along the way. And so I want us to think about that as we follow Isaiah to these summits. So each week as we are going through these just few chapters a week, sometimes not even a few chapters, I want you to imagine that you're kind of following behind Isaiah and you're going to get to this summit top experience. And it's like Isaiah says, look, look, guys, do you see it? And he's kind of beckoning you to take in the view from that point in the book. And he's going to say, can, can you see it? Behold your God. Look, ladies, look for your God. Look for his big story. And what we're going to see from these points is actually this huge expanse, just like as if you were standing on top of a mountain. And you're going to see all the way back to the beginning of the Bible from Isaiah. And you're going to see all the way forward to the life and the works of Jesus. And then even beyond, as we look at the new creation, each and every week, we're going to find that this book of prophecy is laden with arrows that are pointing to Jesus and beyond. Isaiah's passages and the ones that we are going to spend time with have the ability to show us this breathtaking view of God's story. But guys, it's not just that. We're not just going to learn our Bible facts. We're not just going to feel proud of ourselves for studying an often forgotten book in God's word. But guys, also, when we get to these points with Isaiah, he's going to say, look, do you see it? Do you see your story? Do you, do you see yourself in this? Does this sound familiar? Does this struggle sound familiar? Does this fear sound familiar? See, just because we're looking for God and we're looking for God's story does not mean that we won't also learn about ourselves and learn about our story. And it's going to blow us away as we find that the very same hope that was delivered to the first readers of Isaiah is still relevant for us today. So our first summit that Isaiah is going to take us to is actually that of his vision and his commissioning. This might actually be the part of Isaiah that most of us are familiar with. Isaiah chapter six is where we're actually gonna start when you guys start your study tomorrow. And I'm sorry again if that bothers you, if you're super organized and, and super type A, and you're like, we're not starting in chapter one, I'm out. But come on, hang with me guys. I actually think that starting in chapter six is going to motivate us to get through the rest of the book. I want you to think of this vision that he has and this commissioning as the prologue to this book, even though it's not right away in chapter one. And so actually I thought that we could just start there tonight. I thought we could kind of whet our appetites and get ready for what you guys are gonna start studying tomorrow. So I'm just gonna read, starting in Isaiah chapter six, you can open there with me. I'm just gonna read the first seven verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Okay, guys, so what has kind of become our norm on this like intro week is we're only going to pick apart one verse. And we're going to do that tonight. This first verse, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So guys, Isaiah's vision begins with an event. It it begins with this event, the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, well, we are studying a book of prophecy. The, The book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy. So that means it's filled with sermons and sermonettes and oracles. I don't even know what that word means. And woes. Actually, what we find out right here is that even though it's a book of prophecy, it's also a story. And I hope that that brings you guys some relief because it does for me. Books of prophecy are intimidating to me, but a story, stories are built into us. And to see Isaiah first and foremost as a story kind of takes the teeth out of it and it warms me up to what I'm going to learn here. So this is good news. It's a story. So let's get our bearings on his story, guys. This may seem obvious, but we need to realize that Isaiah was a real person. Okay, Isaiah was a real man with a real family and a real home. We'll read in chapter 1 that he lived in Jerusalem with his family in the 8th century. Okay, so this would, we'll be finding ourselves like in the book of 2 Kings a lot to kind of color in this story. And we're going to read that he lived in Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And that's where I just have to stop right now and invite you guys to be honest. Anytime. I start to read in the Bible language like southern kingdom, northern kingdom, Judah, Israel, Jerusalem, names of kings. I just want to back away slowly. I get so confused. I get so intimidated and bored. Does anyone else ever feel that way? You guys are being so polite for this first night. Thank you. Right, guys? I just get super intimidated. And want to either go to a familiar story from Genesis and Exodus or to the Gospels where Jesus is healing people. But to sit here and hear that he's from Judah and Jerusalem and I have no idea what the difference is and there's some kind of split kingdom, I just get intimidated. But guys, we can do this, okay? We can do this. So let's keep moving forward. Okay, so Isaiah was a real man. Let's take a moment and catch up on his story. Actually, guys, for this to become something that we're like motivated to study, let's actually take Isaiah's story and the story of the people of God and let's see how it fits into that big story that we were talking about earlier. Okay, to show you guys that I think that you know, you can get your bearings on this story, possibly even easily, that this is actually familiar. Let's go way back to a story we do know and see how it fits there. So in Genesis, what do we read? In the beginning, God created, come on, the heavens and the earth. Good. We know what we're talking about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And guys, he created it perfectly. He put his children in their perfect home. He gave them promises. He gave them hope. And he gave them relationship. But we know what happens next this good story starts to unravel as his children fail to trust in him and sin and rebellion flood in. The pages are seemingly hopeless at this point. 
Because we know that what happens is that God's children then lose their home. And they lose that closeness, that closeness that God had made for them. Well, then what about if we move forward into Exodus? Well, what's the scene there? Even in the second book of the Bible, guys, the opening scene is seemingly hopeless. Once again. Because where are God's people? They're not in their perfect home. They're in Egypt. It's not just that they're far from home. It's that they're slaves far from home. But as many of you know, God sees them and hears them and knows them. And he comes down and he rescues them, delivering them from slavery. So guys, most of those early books in the Bible, long before Isaiah, those are stories about God delivering promises to his children as he leads them back to their good home. And so here in Exodus, we actually find a thread of hope emerging. It's visible as the story then moves forward. When we get to the books of Joshua and Judges, so maybe you studied Joshua with us last summer. This is when the people of God are entering into the promised land, their good home. And here again, we see God giving them promises. He lays out expectations for them. He gives them hope. He gives them relationship. And it's seemingly perfect as they conquer the land. And then the story begins to unravel. And we start picking up on a pattern. We see God's children failing to trust. And sin and rebellion flood in as we watch the children of God start to compromise and fight against him. We're still moving through the Old Testament now. And we see as we are starting to near Isaiah's time, we find ourselves in the time of the kings. At this point, at early on in the kings, in the books of First and Second Samuel, we actually have hope emerge as we see a good king come on the stage. And we see this king, David, enthroned in Jerusalem, in God's good home for them. God reestablishes his promise with them, but he actually makes the covenant an everlasting covenant. And they are there in the good home, living the good life. And then the story starts to unravel again. Why? Because God's people stop trusting in him and sin and rebellion flood in as we see not just David's sin, but even more so his children and their children's children. And the people of God start circling the drain. Isaiah is living several hundred years after David and his sons. And there were some good kings, almost exclusively in the southern kingdom, I think, but mostly they were unfaithful kings, leading their people into sin, making poor decisions, leading everyone into compromise. Okay, so now here we are, guys. When Isaiah begins telling his story, remember, in case you forgot, we're in a story. When Isaiah starts telling his story, he starts it off with this event. In the year that King Uzziah died. So why do we care about that? Right? Let's ask questions of the text. Why do we care? Why would Isaiah kind of timestamp it with this? I think that actually when we open up to chapter 6, verse 1, we're supposed to feel kind of angsty. In the year that King Uzziah died, I think we're supposed to feel a little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of, of, of nerves even, because we're supposed to understand what's come before it. So everything we just talked about, we're supposed to understand that there's been cycles of disobedience. Cycles of them living with the consequences of their sin up until this point. And I I think that the readers, us, are invited to ask a question at this point. How long can this go on? How long can God's children be rebelling against him before it leads to final and complete ruin? I mean, the the king has died. So that means that there's going to be a transfer of power. So that means that there's going to be a time of tumultuous transition. So the insecurity that was already existing among the people of God because they were in compromise is now heightened all the more in Jerusalem. And what I think Isaiah might have felt at the time is also what all of the people of God 
we're feeling at that time. Fearful, anxious, uncertain. It fits into the bigger pattern of the story. When God's people, when God's children, simply put, stop acting like they're God's children, chaos and hurt ensues. Sin, rebellion, and putting their trust in other places, leading them into chaos. But a specific area of fear, a specific threat for Isaiah and his people that we're going to learn about is the country of Assyria. Okay, so Assyria was a country to the east that was emerging as a world power at this time. So what we need to know, just think of them as this. The Assyrians are the bad guys. And it's going to get kind of interesting as we think about them as we go through the book of Isaiah. But think of Assyria as this pagan country kind of a neighboring country that's swallowing up smaller, weaker countries left and right. So if they uh, didn't overtake you completely, they would make you a vassal country. What that meant is that they would kind of put you under their thumb. So they would make you pay fines to them. They would make you swear loyalty to them. They would demand that you give them military troops. And if that wasn't bad enough, guys, what you were constantly at risk for under kind of this ominous shadow of Assyria was deportation. You were constantly at risk for being taken away from your home. That is what Isaiah and his people are living in at this time, in this time of uncertainty, that at any moment they could lose their home. And as we just saw, as we walked through the Old Testament, home and land was a big deal to them. This was their promise from God. And they are living in this time where it could be taken away at any moment. So guys, it's not just that a king died. That's not just in there so that we can find the year that this happened. But guys, actually, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much more about this fear and this question that the promises of God might be in jeopardy. The question that is lingering in this book, the question is, has the unfaithfulness of God's people now gone on for too long that the promises have been forfeited? Has the unfaithfulness of the people exceeded the patience of God? God's promise to bless, God's promise to create and sustain a people, God's promise for land and a forever king, it seemed to be paper thin at this time. The question is, is God actually faithful? Is God actually going to keep his promises? In the year that King Uzziah died. As Isaiah's story comes into view for us, guys, we see a hopeless scene. You can actually even just feel it in this room. We just feel this downward spiral. We don't see the people of God as a people of promise, but actually probably what we are picturing them as is a people who are poor, who are captives, who are oppressed, And rather being objects of the Lord's favor or possibly objects of the Lord's disdain. This is the story we're stepping into this summer. But you know what, guys? This story doesn't actually sound all that ancient to me. It doesn't even sound all that foreign the more time I spend in it. In fact, aspects of Isaiah's story and even just chapter 6, verse 1, sounds like my story. And I don't think I'm going to go the direction that maybe you think I'm going to go, at least not in this first week. Isaiah had one of those in the year that King Uzziah died moments, and I think that we have them as well. Here's what I mean. Have you had a moment or a season or a year of your life that you felt shaken, that you felt 
insecure, that you felt unsettled? When in your life have you had the boat rocked out from under you? You find yourself trying to brace yourself, almost reaching for something to steady you. Maybe a person or a place in your life that usually is your stability has now been taken from you or something has changed in that relationship. Have you had a time in your life where your source of safety and stability is no longer there? Maybe it's not a person, but maybe it's a circumstance. Something, an expectation in your life that would have brought a sense of arrival or a sense of calm, a sense of accomplishment, but that expectation has remained unmet. Something that should have brought you security never came. Something that you thought was immovable was taken out from under you. Have you had a in the year that King Uzziah died moment where peace was replaced with anxiety, where courage was swallowed whole with fear, where resolve was taken over with questions? I had one of those moments just last week. Just last week, two symbols of security and stability were kind of shaken for me. When I heard the news about the shooting at Cornerstone Church in Ames, I was immediately brought to a place of fear and anxiety and uncertainty. Number one, because in my mind, like so many of your minds, church is a place of safety. Church is the very icon of safety and stability and hope. And I thought, if church isn't safe, then what is safe? But even more so than that, my dad works at Cornerstone and had decided to go to Salt Company last Thursday night. And so he was there. And so I got the call from my mom long before it was in the news or before word had gotten out. And she was in such a panic that I could not understand what she said, except a shooter, people have died, your dad is there. And in that moment, these two icons of safety and security, church and my dad, were kind of shaken. In a moment, I felt like I had lost both of them. And I immediately had anxiety, rightfully so, and a shaking. It felt like maybe what it would have felt like in the year that King Uzziah died, as uncertainty would arise. Ladies, I wonder if you've had a time like that. But maybe for you guys, maybe it's not dramatic. Maybe it's not something kind of acute and and quick like that. Maybe it's not a loss or even a threat. But I wonder if you can relate with this because maybe you feel like you relate with the people of Israel. That maybe your sin or your compromise has now exceeded God's patience. Maybe you fear that that your sin or, or your rebellion will always have the final word. Maybe you feel that you're a lost cause spiritually. Maybe you have been put in a moment or a situation where you feel like Your unfaithfulness has just been put on display for everyone. And you feel that God is fed up with you. And you can no longer feel that that delight from the Lord, but you instead feel his disdain. Whichever one of these situations, guys, you maybe relate more with, here is the problem in both of these times. The problem is when these situations leave us feeling hopeless. That's our problem that we're going to work through with this study, hopelessness. Being hopeless is a much bigger problem than just feeling down. Being hopeless is a much bigger problem than just feeling like you don't have anything to look forward to. It's different than being bored. Hopelessness is dangerous, guys, because hopelessness has us see an end. 
It has us see an end to God's faithfulness. We believe that our sin or this broken world will get the last word. And we are, see ourselves or maybe we see other people as a lost cause. To be hopeless, ladies, is to resign that God's prom- promises have expired. To feel hopeless is to believe that darkness wins. I can't help but wonder if Isaiah was there in the weeks, the months, the years before his vision from the Lord. So what do we do if that's us? What do we do when that is us? It doesn't have to be an overwhelming, in every area of our life, we feel hopeless. But what do we do when we encounter that feeling? How do we engage that? How do we fight against that? Ladies, when you have a, in the year that King Uzziah died moment, then let it also be a moment where you say, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Let our gaze go with Isaiah, who saw the Lord seated on the throne. Let our gaze fall and remain there. The king is alive, and he is on his throne. He did not move, and he is in control, and he is good. His throne cannot be shaken, and he is not going anywhere. Ladies, you know what happens when we see the Lord seated on the throne? Hope grows. Hope swells. Hope billows. Fear and anxiety are overshadowed as hope rises. And here's the thing, guys. Hope is much more than happiness. Hope is so much more than just feeling upbeat. It's even more than optimism. Hope pulls our gaze up and it pulls our gaze ahead and our confidence up and off of our, our circumstances, even off of ourselves. And those places where we would otherwise see a dead end, hope shows us a new way forward. Hope gives us a vision to believe in. Hope helps us believe in what we cannot yet see. There's a story after Isaiah that plays so well off of this in Luke chapter 4. Actually, in Luke chapter 4, this is a very relatable story for us guys because it's a short little story about a Bible study on Isaiah. All that's missing is 250 awesome women from eastern Iowa. There's a story in Luke 4 about Jesus, and he's in a Bible study. Starting in verse 16, this is what it says. And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Guys, Jesus is there in this Jewish church, and he volunteers, as you know he would, to be the reader for the day. And they hand him Isaiah, and he picks just a portion of Isaiah, much like what we're doing this summer. And he goes for it. He picks Isaiah 61, which is this beautiful messianic prophecy, which means a promise for a rescuer. And he starts reading about a rescuer to come, a rescuer for the poor, the blind, the captive, and the oppressed. Guys, all these summits in Isaiah, all of these mountaintops in all of the Old Testament that were arrows pointing forward, they were all arrows pointing to this man in this synagogue holding this scroll of Isaiah 700 years after Isaiah prophesied it. And as he read this prophecy, he is not an arrow pointing to someone still to come. 
But like Isaiah, he's standing there and he's saying, do you see it? Do you see it? From this summit, from this mountaintop. Do you see it? Behold your God. And in that moment, he does not say, look ahead. But instead, it says that he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus mic drops and says, it's me. He says, I am the hope. I am hope embodied. I am the fulfillment of these promises. Ladies, to have hope is to cling to God's promise that he will fix the mess that sin has made. To have hope means to have assurance that our sin and our death will not get the last word. Why? Because of Jesus. This is the spoiler alert for all of the book of Isaiah. The whole book is about Jesus. He is our hope. So let us set our gaze there, no matter what is happening in our life, no matter what has happened, no matter what is going to happen in the next five weeks, let us set our gaze on King Jesus and let it remain there. Let our hope go nowhere else. Like the old hymn says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Ladies, what is the specific thing that you have put your hope in other than Jesus? Don't leave without being specific. Where, from, from what do you need to turn your hope that you may more fully put it in the person and the work of Jesus and in his love for you? That's what the whole story is about. The whole story of the Bible, the whole story of Isaiah is that God will rescue us from our sin. He has done it through Jesus. Because of that, we are his happy and blessed children. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Isaiah. We thank you for ahead of time, for helping us get into it, for showing us that it is accessible and that it is applicable, that there is things in it every single day that we can apply, that we can, that we can cling to, that our hope may grow. So, Father, do a mighty work in us this summer. It's in your name we pray. Amen.